Good morning. If uh, you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 28. It has been a little over a year and a half, and this is our last week in Matthew. We're going to have to find something new to put on the walls. It has been so good. You know, our, our theme was, this is Jesus. And our goal was to find out from God's word, from God himself, who is Jesus? Not, to what, not what do people think about who Jesus is. Not, do people wanna, not, not what do people want to make up about who Jesus is, but who is Jesus really? And then to, to think through, okay, so this is Jesus. Like, who is he? What did he teach? What did he actually say and communicate? And that we would understand what Jesus taught. And uh, the great thing about this passage this morning is that it really is the application of everything that we've learned in Matthew about who Jesus is and what he actually did and what that proved about who he was and what he taught. And, and this passage is like with the whole foundation of Matthew, now this is the purpose of your life, this is what you do. This passage is known as the Great Commission. It's what Jesus says, after all is said and done, he, he's standing there with his disciples and he's going to communicate to them, this is your purpose in life. So this is the purpose statement. You could just go to the purpose of your church and all across the United States, Matthew 28, 19, you know, 16 to 20, 19 and 20 are going to be mentioned as the theme verse for a church. And let me just ask you guys a question. This is a kind of a theology question, so some of you <laughs> might not know this, but some of you will. But, but what is the church? It's, okay, man, you guys, you guys are well-trained. A lot of times people think the church is a building. A church is not a building. A church is a group of people. And so if, the purpose of the, if this is the purpose of the church, this is your personal purpose. And so this is a, a very important, powerful passage. Um, it's, it is ignored in many churches. It is ignored in the lives of many Christians. But this is our theme. This is our purpose. And I would just say this, that no church should ever do anything, not one single thing, that is not an expression of this purpose. And I would say even for you, you in your life should do nothing that is not an expression of what this passage is talking about. But I'll just tell you, there are loads of individuals, there are loads of families, and there are loads of churches that do not live with this as their theme. And one of the things I love about this is in some ways it's, it's very simple. So uh, let's, let's just jump in and let's, let's look at this. Um, but I want to start by just reading this verse. Uh, John 10.10, 10, it says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that they might have life, and they might have it abundantly. Do you want to know who does not have abundant life? It's people who don't live this out as their purpose. Um, living out what we're going to hear this morning is what produces the abundant life that God brought. And every other pursuit, and, and by the way, the reason that lots of churches and individuals and families don't live out this passage is because they want an abundant life, and they think there's a different way to get it. But every time we set aside what God says and do our own thing, pursue our own things, we end up broken, 
we end up pursuing meaningless things. And that's the first part of this verse. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what happens to everybody who doesn't put this into practice. And so that's why this really is the purpose of our life. You know, you think about Psalm 1 where it just says that the one who pursues the Lord and and who's honoring him, he's going to be like a tree firmly planted, and in the storms of life, he won't wither. You know, Psalm 127, one of my favorite passages, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. But God gives to his beloved in their sleep. I mean, this really is the theme of life. So we're going to see four important things that should, that should like flow out of your life. The first thing, the first one that we're going to see in this passage is that we need to live dedicated to worshiping Jesus. The second thing is that we need to live in submission to the authority of Jesus. We're going to see that. The third thing is that we need to live committed to being and making disciples. And the fourth thing is that we need to live with the comfort that Jesus will never leave us. Those are the four things that should be a part of every Christian's life. So let's dig in here. Let's read and let's think about what these things are saying, the significance of these things. We need to live in a way that is dedicated to worshiping Jesus. Let's read this passage. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, that is um, such an important passage. It's in some ways very simple, but it also is something that takes an incredible lifetime. It's something that is overwhelming and in some ways impossible for us to do. In fact, you can never do these things on your own. A A person has to be born again. You have to know who Jesus is. And then through the Holy Spirit, you're able to live this out. You cannot do these things apart from Christ, but this does need to be the purpose that each of us have. Let's consider this whole idea of worship, live a life dedicated to worshiping Jesus. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee and they saw the mount, to the mountain that Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I love that it says they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, as far as this mountain and who was there, we know that the 11 disciples are there. Matthew mentions that. But it doesn't mean that they're the only ones that are there. In fact, many people believe that this is the time that Paul's referring to in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says at one point Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. So many people believe this was that time. But whether it was that time with with like over 500 people, or just the 11 disciples, the fact that it says they worshiped him, but some doubted. You know, the Christian life 
is not one that's lived um, in the ideal, where everything's always perfect and we don't struggle. I mean, have we seen that in Matthew? That the disciples have stumbled, they've failed, they've fallen. Peter's denying Jesus. Peter says this amazing thing about Jesus. You're the Christ, the Son of God. And, and then Jesus says, God revealed this to you. And then Peter's next phrase is to grab Jesus and rebuke him and say, don't go to the cross. So, so as you read the Gospel of Matthew, man, the Christian life is not lived in the ideal. There is struggles and challenges and difficulties all along the way. But the Christian life is focused, and, and a person who knows the Lord is focused on worshiping Jesus. See, we live in a culture, and we have there are churches, and there are people who worship themselves. Now, the word for worship, um, there's two words in the Old and New Testament. So in Greek and Hebrew, there's a couple ideas behind the words worship. And the two words that are kind of translated as worship are, one, it's to bow down, right? You picture somebody bowing before an idol. That's the idea of bowing down and worshiping. And the other one is the word serve. And so if you think about the concept of bowing down, you bow down to a king. You're saying, you're amazing. You are awesome. You are, you are high and exalted, and I'm low. Uh, you, I live to please you. What do you want me to do? It's like people live at the pleasure of the king. And he says, you know, it's like you, you read the Old Testament and there were times that there was these generals or kings would say, just go fight. And these people would just go fight and die. It was just like, what do you want? I'll do it. In fact, one time David's in this cave. He's like, oh, man, if only I could drink some water from this, this uh, brook, you know, back in, back in his hometown. And a couple of his mighty men hear him say that. And they go fight through this massive Philistine army. They fight through it, and they go get him some water, and they bring him water. Willing to give up their lives, they serve at his pleasure. And that is what a Christian is. It is a person, a Christian is a person who worships God, who lives and serves at God's pleasure. There's a lot of people who think life's about them. They think my life, the purpose of my life is to serve me and to be happy and to be excited and to have the things I want. What God says doesn't matter. No, it's what I want that matters. And there are churches who they're, they're led and they're run by people who they just grab the latest books and they think, oh, man, what's the best idea and what should we do? And everybody's just kind of coming up with their own stuff. And when they give people counsel, are they careful to never tell anybody something that varies from scripture no they just kind of say well what do i think would be best in this situation it doesn't really matter if it's what god says but this is what i think is best there's people who live life according to their own wisdom but christians worship and we do that in a failed flawed way because we're fallible we're sinful we have a sinful flesh but we worship god and i love this in this passage because it just says they worshiped him, but some doubted. Some people were struggling. And so that's the place that we live. Um, by the way, Matthew begins and ends with worship, uh, right? When Jesus is being born, people are coming to worship him. Think about the temptation. Satan says, worship me and I'll give you everything. It's what he tells Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you worship God alone. The fact that throughout the Gospels, Jesus is being worshiped, when, when Thomas falls down before him and says, my Lord and my God, uh, Jesus doesn't say, 
uh, no, stand up, don't worship me. Why? It's because Jesus is God. So our, uh, the purpose of our life is the worship of Jesus. I loved it this morning before the service started. I'm out in the hall talking to somebody. We're just having a good old time talking. And the person I'm talking to goes, that's great, but I got to get into church. <laughs> church is starting. And you want to know something? I love that. And I'm just saying, I'm, you know, I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to know that church is starting. <laughs> you know, we love each other. And we love being here. We love visiting. But we're here to worship God. And that is not just on Sunday morning. That is the expression of our life all the time. Here's a second thing. And this really is related to the idea of worship. It's that we live our lives submitted to the authority of Jesus. That is significant, the issue of authority is a significant thing. Let me just read this. Jesus said, came to them, and he said this, verse 18. He says, oh, I skipped a bunch of maps. I was going to show you Galilee. Okay, here, let me just show you real quick. There's Galilee. Jesus went from Jerusalem up to Galilee. Nobody knows which mountain he was on, but this is possibly where he was. And here's another picture of that from a different angle, place maybe where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. Now let's uh, get over to number two. We need to live our lives submitted to the authority of Jesus. And we'll, we'll get to these verses in a minute. Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority on heaven and in earth. All authority belongs to Jesus. That is all-encompassed all-encompassing. There is no place where that, that, Jesus has all authority. Now, authority is, is two things. Authority is the power to do whatever you want. As you look at the, the way that this word is used, it's the power to do what you want, and it's the right to do what you want. So, Jesus is all-powerful, and also everybody and everything is obligated to him. So we obey Jesus not just because he can make us, but because we're supposed to. We're obligated to. He owns us. He made us. He made the world. But both of those concepts are important in this idea of authority. It's because, man, we trust Jesus. We trust his sovereignty, the fact that he is in control of everything. And so we trust him. Whatever he says goes. There, there is, you know, I love in Isaiah, just talks about the nations, and, and God just says, basically, the nations are nothing. They're like, they're, they're less than a drop of water. They're, they're like nothing to me. The entire world and everybody in it against God is nothing. God has ultimate power. It's kind of interesting in our country, we think if we can get enough people together to vote on something, that that makes it right. It doesn't. If we can get, well, you know, what's more popular? What do more people think? Who cares? It's what God says that matters. And God has not only the, the right to do whatever he wants to do, he has the power to do whatever he wants to do. Think about that. God told Israel, you are not to worship anyone before me. God said that. He has the obligation. People are obligated to obey God saying, you will only worship me. But God also has power. Now let's think about the way that worked its way out in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's life, right? 
they go over. Nebuchadnezzar, big, massive, powerful man, just destroyed their whole nation, carried them off. And he says, you will, you will bow down to my idol. And they say, um, actually, no, king, we're not going to. And, and he's just saying, nobody can save you from me. And you know what they say? They say, well, hey, even if we're going to die, we're not worshiping your idol. And why? Because they were completely submitted to the authority of Jesus. It does not matter what somebody else thinks. It doesn't matter how powerful they are. And it doesn't matter if it costs you your life. You obey God no matter what. Life is not about you. Life is about worshiping God. And God has the right to take life, to tell you to give up your life. You don't own yourself. God owns you, and there is no limit to that. And so when they say, no, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to bow down and worship, he goes, all right, heat that thing up seven times hotter than it takes to melt um, metal and go throw them in, and the soldiers throwing them in die. But do they die? No, because God's in authority. Remember when Jesus is talking to Pilate, and he just goes, hey, Pilate, the only reason I'm here is because God has allowed this. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you. God has the right to do and say whatever he wants, and he also has the power to do whatever he wants. And that's why, as believers, we don't go through life trying to figure out what's best. We go through life trying to figure out, God, what did you say? That is what I will do. And sometimes it's like, oh, man, obedience will wreck my life. I'll be miserable. I'll be unhappy. This will be terrible. But it is never our job to figure out um, what's going to make our life better or worse. It is only our job to do what God tells us to do. And we're going to find out that that actually flows from our heart. Now, this, this authority... Um, the, the scribes and Pharisees and, and everybody recognized that Jesus taught with authority. Do you know why he taught with authority? Because he wrote the Bible. Um, the Bible's inspired, right? It is not just the red letters that Jesus wrote. It is everything in there. Um, Jesus, in just talking about authority, he's talking to this, uh, this Roman comes to him. And uh, he asked Jesus to do something for him, and, and he just says, hey, I'm a man, this Roman says, I'm a man under authority. You don't have to come to my house. I tell people, go here and do this, and they go there and they do that. And I'm under authority, and when the people in charge of me tell me to do stuff, I do it. He says, you don't need to come to my house. You could just say it, and it'll be done. Remember when Jesus says to the uh, paralytic, your sins are forgiven? And then he says, so that you know I have the authority to forgive sins, I'm also going to tell this guy, get up and walk, because Jesus has authority over everything. You want to know how people live today? They just do whatever is right in their own eyes. This is one of the big problems with churches and Christians is they don't read the Bible, because if they read it from the beginning to the end, they would realize that doing whatever is right in your eyes is always leads to disaster. It's what uh, they were, the Israelites were told in Deuteronomy. 
don't do what is right in your own eyes. How about the book of Judges? Everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. In Sodom and Gomorrah, they did what was right in their own eyes. Remember, the, the two people come into the town, and, and uh, Lot brings them into his house, and the men of the city gather around and say, bring those men out, we're going to sleep with them. And uh, Lot says, this is a wicked thing, don't do this. And how do they respond? Who are you to judge us? You're a foreigner. You're going to show up and you're going to start judging us. Hey, we hear that all over the place, right? There's a lot of people who just do what's right in their own eyes. I was listening to um, one guy who wrote a book, and he wrote this book on, for, on the role of women. There's this controversial thing of, are men and women, are they exactly the same and God has the same purpose and role and function for them? Or are there roles does God intend that men and women are different, but they complement each other? And uh, this, this person was just writing this book, and he just said, um, you know, I think if I have a choice of listening to a bad sermon preached by a man or a good sermon preached by a woman, I pick the good sermon preached by the woman. That's what he said. And I'm just thinking to myself, what an incredibly ridiculous statement to make. I mean, that is like, if you were to say a sexist statement, that is the most sexist statement I could think of. Why? You're going to say that women can only preach if they're good and a man only if you don't listen to the man if he's bad. Like if you have two people that have equal talent, then the man preaches but not the woman. That is so sexist and so ridiculous. On the other hand, if God says there's a certain role for men and a different role for women, and this is what I want men to do, and this I don't want women to do, then does it matter who's talented and who's not? Absolutely not. That question is resolved by one thing, and that's not what this sermon's about. It's resolved by one thing, and that is what does God say? And we don't limit people in any way that God has not limited people. And we don't release any limits that God has made. Because it's not about us. We follow what God says. But we live in a world and we're full of churches and Christians that just do everything according to their own, whatever's best in their own eyes. God says don't live with somebody before you're married to them. Stay sexually pure. Like, that's just a basic no-brainer. God says it, that's what we do. But how many people just disregard that and they just live their life like, well, whatever. No, that was a long time ago or that's not kind of what, I'm just not up for that. It's been kind of shocking for me recently. Um, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but, but uh, my daughter just got engaged. Yay for, yay for Cannon and uh, Julianne. Cannon's back there. Julianne's somewhere else, but that's okay. We got Cannon. We're happy about that. But just as they've talked about their own personal commitments in the area of, of, of uh, purity, people are just like, what? That's weird. Who would do that? Well, you want to know who does that? Christians do that. Why? Because that's what God says we do. Um, the Bible says this, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But the wise man listens to advice. In the context of Proverbs, advice is what God tells us. Proverbs 21.2, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. doesn't matter what you think is right or wrong. It only matters what God says is right or wrong. 
Here's a, the third thing. We need to live a life committed to being and making disciples of everyone. There's two commands in this passage. And um, people do some interesting things with the participles in this passage. The very first one, the word go, that's a participle. But it actually takes on the command of make disciples. So, like, there's people that, that retranslate this passage as as you are going. And I just want you to know that's inaccurate. The way the ESV translates it is how it should be translated. And this is what it says, which I guess that's not, shouldn't be a surprise to us, right? All the translators translate it this way. Well, that's because that's the way it's supposed to be translated. I, I often say, you know what this says in Greek? And then I just read the English because almost always that's the case. So you all can have access to that. Just read your Bible. Matthew 28, 19 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then I'll read the rest of that in a minute. Um, I just want to say this. Uh, we're commanded to go make disciples. That's our purpose. What's a disciple? A disciple is a learner, a pupil, a student. And what Jesus says is that when a student is fully trained, he will be like his master. A Christian is a person who is Christ-like. Every Christian is a disciple. And if you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. There's other people who theologically, they, they approach Scripture and they try to make this division of, well, there's one level that where you could be a Christian, another level where you could be a disciple. And, and people kind of have this theology that they impose on Scripture and they just, they brutalize Scripture and they ignore the plain teaching of Scripture when they come up with those ideas. Jesus is very clear that you, to follow Jesus is to be a disciple, and that's going to include obeying. Do you remember when Jesus, Matthew 7, says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father will enter. There are some people who try to turn that into a work salvation. That is not work salvation. Jesus is just saying that profession doesn't save you. A heart change saves you, and a heart change results in obedience. Salvation is not caused by obedience. Obedience is the result of salvation. That's just what Jesus is saying there in Matthew 7. And so we're to go make disciples. A, a disciple is somebody who worships Jesus. It's somebody who submits to and trusts the authority of Jesus. And you can't make a disciple if you're not a disciple. Now, baptizing and teaching to obey all I've commanded you. We'll get to those in a second. But you, you should be a disciple and you should make disciples. We're all in the process of discipleship. Discipleship never ends. One of the biggest problems is when people don't realize they need to learn things. Um, when, when you get somebody who thinks they know everything. It's one of the worst things about, it's like my heart just breaks sometimes. I see people who are trying to parent and they're new parents and they don't really know how to do it. They haven't been trained, but they think they know what to do and they ignore everything that the Bible says about how you're supposed to parent and what you're supposed to do. And they are on a road to destruction. But you want to know what the problem is? They're not going to figure that out until it's too late. The things that you do when a kid is two, three, four, five, six years old has ramifications when they're 30. People think they lose their faith, that kids lose their faith in college. No, it's in college that who you really are comes out. And so the problem is that by the time people figured out 
man, I, I should have done that differently. It's too late. It's heartbreaking when people are at the beginning and they don't think they need to learn or Christians who think they're done learning. That is heartbreaking. Um, I'm still learning all the time. Everybody I'm around, I'm so inspired and so encouraged by people sometimes younger than me who just live faithful lives. I look at these people who have been married for like six years, and I see these amazing things in their marriage. And I just go, man, I need to be more like that. I learn from the believers that God puts in my life, and I'm trying to help teach and train other people. Um, I am so thankful for the people who taught me to live out Christianity. People, I didn't just figure out how to parent. There's faithful, godly people who they parented, and then they taught me, and then I did the best I could. And so we, we learn things. We are always in the process of discipleship, and what is tragic is the church is full of people who don't think they need to learn. That is the ultimate fool, is the person who thinks they know. I've had uh, some theological debates with people, and in their discussion of these theological issues, they make obvious that they don't even understand the theological issues they're debating, but they think they're an expert. It is tragic when we think we already know. God says we are to go and make disciples, and we're to make disciples of all nations. Um, Christianity is the only solution to race problems, is to just view life, to view people biblically. All of us came from Adam and Eve. All of us, again, came from Noah and his kids. Um, we are all people made in God's image, every person. There's no value difference between uh, one race or another race. We're the human race. And everything our culture does to solve race problems only makes it worse. The, the, you want to solve the race problems? Just help people come to know Christ and live the way God says to live. That solves race problems. It is the only solution to race problems. And we are supposed to pursue the salvation and discipleship of everyone. So training matters. Um, there's a lot of people who just feel like, oh, man, kids just grow up. They just do whatever. People just do whatever. Uh, people walking off the cliff. Training matters. You could take a bunch of kids who are little league and little league playing baseball, get a professional baseball uh, coach, batting coach, to come and spend time with them. I don't care what kind of natural talent or ability those kids have. Um, they may not all end up being professional baseball players. I can guarantee you this. They're all going to do a better job of hitting the ball. I think about my wrestling coach. Um, when I was in high school, our, our high school always won league in wrestling. And I just want you to know it had nothing to do with the talent of the people on our team. And I know that because I was on our team. <laughs> and uh, I started and I had zero talent. I was skinny. I was weak. And, uh, and I just remember, like, I ended up winning league my first year ever. Why? Because I had a good coach. He was inspiring. He was encouraging. He used to, he, he would go into our, our football or our wrestling team and, and he would just say, um, hey guys, this is really hard. He would like yell at us while we were practicing. He'd say, this is really hard. If this is too hard for you, don't be ashamed. And he would say some things and I'm just going to tell you what he said. I'm not saying I agree with it, but he used to just yell at us. He used to say, women play volleyball and boys play basketball. 
but men wrestle. And he would just like be yelling, and it, he would yell that at us in the gym with the basketball players who were in the same gym playing basketball. He'd say, if this is too hard for you, it's okay, you can quit. They got some spots on the basketball team. But he would yell at us, and he would make us do things, and, and he just developed this teamwork, and he trained us, and he taught us things. And if there was somebody on the team that had a really tough match coming up that week, he would put that person in the front, and he'd have every single other person on the team just line up. He'd say, okay, go take them down, and they would go try to take the person down, and they would just one after another, and everybody on the team's trying to help this guy learn the things that he needs to learn to be successful. I'll never forget this time there was one of the wrestlers is out on the mat against our, our high school team that's like, it was like this huge rival, and he's just getting thrown all over the mat like a rag doll. And then at the end of the period, he comes over to the coach, and he goes, Coach, I'm going to win this one. I'm about to win. And we're just all looking at him going, what are you thinking? But here's the, here's the thing. He didn't have the talent, but our coach got us in such good shape. That other guy was exhausted. He went out there 15 seconds later. He pinned that guy. It's coaching. And that's what God intends for the Christian life, discipleship. And if you don't disciple, if you don't coach kids in sports, they're not going to do well. If you don't disciple people, they will not do well. And somehow we just have this gap, and we think that life is random, and what ends up happening in people's life is just some random thing. Instead of saying, no, it is our job to humbly read what God says and do what God says. And that has results in life. And so that's an important thing to understand, but I just want to go out there and say God's amazing and God's miraculous and God loves people. And I've seen people grow up in homes, godly homes with parents that love the Lord and, and are investing in them, and you see these kids that just grow up and they're fools. And they ignore all the stuff they've been taught. And then you see other people who grow up in homes with no training, no teaching, no education from a spiritual perspective, and God gets a hold of their heart and transforms their life. So we are not in control of life. But as Christians, we need to be faithful to learn what God says and do what God says. And churches neglect that. Christians neglect that. So there's two steps to discipling people. A lot of people are like, well, what is discipleship? How do you do discipleship? Um, I'm going to explain it to you this morning. It's not that complicated. It's hard to do. It's not that complicated. It's actually very simple. It's not this mystery. Um, here's how you do it. You baptize people, and you teach them to obey everything Jesus says. That's it. That's, that's what discipleship is. So let's talk a little bit about that baptism. Uh, we have a baptism coming up on the 22nd. And I, I just want you to know, if you're a Christian, you should be baptized. If you're not a Christian, you shouldn't be baptized. But if you are a Christian, you should be baptized. In fact, baptism went so closely with salvation in the New Testament that there's people who read scripture and think baptism is required for salvation. You ever met anybody who had that, that doctrinal belief? It's because it was so closely associated with salvation. Everybody became a Christian and got baptized. Everyone. And baptism was significant because when you got baptized, you were identifying yourself as a Christian, which meant persecution. Um, in the early church, first few hundred years of the church, if you got baptized one week, you might be fed to lions the next week. 
So baptism was a significant public proclamation of what God did to you spiritually. See, you are saved by baptism. You're just not saved by water baptism. You are saved by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Peter says baptism now saves us. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, not water baptism, but an appeal to God for a clear conscience, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's Romans chapter 6. We have all been baptized into Christ. We've been baptized into his death so that, his, as, so that we're, we're, we're being baptized into his death so that we might rise to newness of life. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is what saves you. Water baptism is a picture of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And every Christian should be baptized. And in the New Testament, only Christians were baptized and all Christians were baptized. And, and when you think about it, there's a lot of people like, I don't, I, I'm, it's inconvenient. I don't really want to do that. It's, I'd be too embarrassed to get in front of everyone at the church. Really? Um, so... You'd be willing to be fed to a lion, but you won't stand in front of the church and get baptized? You think about the privilege that baptism is, regardless of what it costs you. Could you imagine you ask somebody to marry you, and they say, yeah, sure, uh, I'll marry you, but I just don't want any of my friends to know. <laughs> like, what happens when people get engaged? I mean, recently I've seen that with, it gets posted all over every social media. We got a family chat with, like, 80 pictures of engagement in it. It's so cute. We love it. <laughs> it is a privilege to identify with Jesus. And if that brings persecution into your life, it's a privilege. You love Jesus more than, than other people. You love Jesus more than any kind of comfort you could have in this life. In fact, Jesus says this. Anyone who does not hate his father and mother and brother and sister and even his own life cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, I'm number one or you're not a disciple. I'm number one or you're not a Christian. And people like have lists of reasons. Now, if you didn't get baptized, um, the church has really blown it by not teaching the importance of baptism. For a lot of people, it's not an unwillingness to be baptized. It's that nobody helps them understand the significance of it. So this was just a little part of me trying to help all of you. If you haven't been baptized, you should do it. We have one coming up on the 22nd. Um, baptized in what? The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So I was in a group of pastors um, and we were just talking about what does a person need to know to be saved? What do you need to know about Jesus to be saved? Do you need to know that he's God? Do you need to know that he's a man? Like, what are the, what are the minimum things you have to know to be saved? And they're saying baptism, which is salvation. It's having people come to Christ. Baptizing the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Remember in Acts, there's these people, they're disciples, and, and they say, um, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they said, well, we haven't even heard if there's a Holy Spirit. Well, then what baptism were you baptized into? The baptism of John. Those were Old Testament believers. Why did, were they filled with the Spirit and speak in the tongues? In tongues? It's because that's when they became a Christian. They didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. But we baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You have to know who God is. God is a trinity. 
He's not just any kind of deistic idea. He is specific. One God in three persons. So there's theological education that happens as people are being evangelized. There are certain things they need to know. And this is starting with the Trinity, is what goes along with baptism. And we could talk more about that, but we'll move ahead. Everybody was baptized in the New Testament. And then Jesus goes on, and he says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now, if you think about that, what does that mean? It means people have to know what Jesus says. They need to read the Bible, and I already told you that's the whole Bible. People need to know everything about what the Bible says. And so, but it's not just, can I fill my head with facts? No. You need to know what these facts are. You need to know what Jesus says, and you need to know that you need to obey it. Isn't it, and it's just crazy. There are people who have become Christians, they realize they're sinners, and they need to put their faith in Christ, and they've never actually learned that they're supposed to obey Jesus. Because everybody that they look around at, even their spiritual leaders, even the people that they go to for advice go, they just disregard Scripture. Yeah, the Bible says that, but let's not do that. I think this would be better. And when you have people trying to figure out how to run and lead a church, they don't grab the Bible and say, what does God say? They grab whatever the latest business book is, whatever some new idea somebody has is, and they build the church on that. And people just learn, oh, yeah, just, just kind of do whatever you feel like doing. Um, they're not expected to obey. You know, people rise to the level of their expectation. People are oh, teenagers, yeah, they, they can't obey God. And, and newly married people, they can't stay pure. I mean, I, I, that's not going to happen. And, and it's just like people just have these low expectations instead of just going, no, Christians obey God, and this is what God says, and all Christians obey God. Let me show you how that works out in my life. I obey God. And so people need to know, number one, what Jesus says. Number two, they need to know that they're supposed to obey it. And then number three, they need help on how. That's discipleship. How do I do that? And let's just talk about marriage, for example. You know anybody who struggles in their marriage? I mean, I don't know, everybody? <laughs> I mean, maybe there's, I've, I've met some people who don't struggle, but man, that'd be nice. I've heard some people say, man, I've been married for, I've been married for 20 years. and It's been the five of the best years of my life. You take all the good times, squeeze them together, it adds up to five years. Um, hey, Michelle and I have struggled. You know, for our first year and a half, we didn't have a single fight, but it's just because it took us a year and a half to disagree about something. And then all of a sudden, I realized we're not as easy to get along with as I thought we were. I remember just thinking, oh, my goodness, my life is over. I am so miserable. I am trapped. I can never get out of this. Uh, we were talking to somebody the other day. It wasn't your fault, Michelle. I'm sure it was mainly my fault. But at the time, I, I thought it was her fault. I was talking to somebody this week, and they said, man, you guys have been married for 30 years. How'd you do that? And I just told them, well, it's because there's no way out. And uh, when we got married, we just realized we can be miserable forever, or we can figure out how to do this the way God says to do it. Because there are no other options. And what, what marriage is, what discipleship is, is the older men in the church coming alongside the younger man and saying, no, this is how you lead your family. 
This is how you love your wife the way Christ loved the church. This is the way you lead your wife the way Christ led the church. And it's all the godly women in the church coming alongside the ladies who are struggling and saying, this is what the Bible says about how you live with your husband when he's an idiot. You know, if you read 1 Peter 3, it says if your husband's disobedient and if he's an idiot... Well, it doesn't say idiot, but it just says if he's disobedient to the word. That's a very strong word for disobedience. It says you win him over without a word by your chaste and your respectful behavior. So the older ladies who have learned how to do that when marriage is hard are to come alongside the younger ladies and help them figure out how to do it. And then to call in the reinforcements for the men to help that man not be such a knucklehead and so hard to live with. You know, we have so many people trying to figure out all these things. Life becomes way more simple. When you just read the Bible, what does it say I'm supposed to do? What does it say my goal is? What does it say my purpose is? I'm going to do that, and I'm going to figure out the rest. By the way, discipleship is why people need church. You have all kinds of people who in their life, they're not plugged into church the way they should be plugged into church. And then when they start having problems, there's nobody to help and support them when they need the help and support. Um, with kids, you know, when I raised my kids, I taught them to be plugged in and functioning in church. And I'm thinking when they turn 20 and they start wandering off the path and everything I'm doing and saying to them has no pull, no help. They're not listening to me. They're mad at me. I got like 10 other people from their life that they love that have invested in them, and I can call them up and say, one of my kids is struggling. Can you call them and encourage them and help them? And they have the resources of the whole body of Christ to go after them. And yet you just have people who, they're absent. They're nowhere to be seen. And they don't listen, and they don't learn, and then they struggle, and there's no one to help. And you know what? A lot of people just go to church. They go to church every week. But they're in a church that doesn't disciple. And so when they're in trouble, there's no one to help. Discipleship is the purpose of the church. And so we need to live and be committed to making disciples. And then here's the last thing. We live comforted by the personal presence of Jesus Matthew 28, 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is two things. That is accountability and it's encouragement. I think about Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of God to whom we must give an account. And then that goes on, and it's so amazing because it says this, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us draw near to the throne of grace. Jesus, there's an accountability that he's always with us, but there's a, a massive, incredible comfort that he loves us and he cares about us. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples... He says, one day when you're following me and you're pulled in front of a room and you're, you're, you're going to be put on trial, don't even worry about what you're going to say because in that moment, I'm going to give you the words. I just want you to know Jesus is with you 
And when you're a disciple, we follow Jesus, we're with him. Uh, if you've blown it, you've failed, you're looking at your life and thinking, man, it's not all that it should be. In some ways, I just say, okay, so? <laughs> Great. The, the best time to plant a tree was 100 years ago. The second blast, best time to plant a tree is today. And God's gracious and he loves us and he puts, he puts broken things back together. That's what Jesus does. And so we're not in control of the future, but we can fall on our knees and just say, God, I worship you and I'm going to obey you. And that's the way we should all live. And that's what discipleship is, is teaching people how to do those things. And we know we've got Jesus with us. I just want to say, if you're not a believer, don't let today pass. If you're not a Christian, don't let today pass without making a decision to become a disciple. If you're a disciple who doesn't know what Jesus says and you don't know how to obey it, don't let today go by before you say, I'm going to be a disciple of Christ the way Jesus intended. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your grace and for your kindness and your love. And Lord, that, that life is in some ways not that complicated. It can be very difficult and very challenging. But what it comes down to is we just need to love you and we need to worship you. God, I pray that our love for you would increase. God, thank you that it is not our performance that makes us right before you. It's your grace, your mercy, your work on the cross. And Lord, there's always forgiveness and restoration, and we've learned that in the book of Matthew. Help us as a church to be a disciple-making church in your name. Amen.